The deals are getting hotter during the dear days of summer. Get 0% financing for 60 months on all John Deere compact tractors. Plus, get a best-in-class six-year powertrain warranty at no additional cost. Hurry in today for the hot deals of summer. Offer ends August 2nd, 2016, subject to approved installment credit with John Deere Financial. Terms, conditions, exclusions, and warranty limitations apply. See dealer for details. Visit your local John Deere dealer today to take advantage of special savings going on now. Find out more at myjohndeerdealer.com. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Welcome to my weekly From My Mama's Kitchen talk radio show. My guest for this morning is award-winning author Carol Brody Fleet. She is an authority on grief, loss, and life adversity recovery. Carol and I will be discussing her latest book, When Bad Things Happen to Good Women. It is a unique and fresh approach to learning how to successfully cope and move forward from many of life's challenges that women of all ages have faced or may face in today's world. Good morning, Carol. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing this morning? I'm great, Johnny. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure to have you on the air with me. When Bad Things Happen to Good Women is a very insightful read. It's a very difficult read for me, but it really helped me quite a bit. It brought me back to moments in my life and reflecting upon on how I handle myself during those moments of grief. Thank you for sharing the wonderful solutions in the book to help people heal and move on. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I appreciate those kind words. That's so sweet of you. You're welcome. Let us start by getting to know you a little better. Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. Oh, okay, quick. Well, I know it's very, um, it's very vogue, uh, I'll say, to complain about having a dysfunctional childhood and, and all the terrible things that happened because our parents didn't know what they were doing. I'm about to be really disappointing. Uh, my childhood was really about as good as it gets. Uh, it really was. Um, I was born and raised in Southern California, which was a fantastic place to grow up. It's where I remain to this day, perhaps because I'm still growing up. I don't know, but that's where I am. Um, my parents, actually, my parents struggled tremendously in our early years uh, financially, but uh, I, my brother and I, we never knew it. Uh, we were never deprived of anything. I my goodness, I, uh, I danced, I played cello, I was a competitive gymnast. I, I was afforded all these incredible opportunities. Um, we, I, I absolutely adored school, both academically and extracurricularly. I loved every aspect of school. Uh, I loved moving out and being on my own, which was uh, mm-hmm. fantastic fun. Uh, I received my, uh, uh, my degree in paralegal assistantship, legal studies. And I was in the legal profession for 15 years before I left it to uh, realize great success as a sales director for a major cosmetics company. Uh, mm-hmm. I, became a, I became a mother to my beautiful daughter, Kendall, who is uh, now an adult. So really, uh, and I'm not saying that everything was idyllic and smooth and perfect, as we will get into with the show, mm-hmm. but uh, growing up and all the events that brought me to this day uh, all happened for a reason, I believe, and all helped coalesce to create the person that I am. And so while not every experience is desirable, 
it is certainly experiences that have shaped the person I've become today. Wonderful, wonderful. When in your journey did you decide to become a grief expert? You know, I'm not sure, Johnny, that that's anything that somebody consciously decides. I, I did mm-hmm. not. I, I've always loved writing, and I've always had an aptitude for it, but no, I don't think anybody thinks, and I'm going to be a member of the bereaved community, and I'm going to one day uh, specialize in helping the bereaved community. It was about five years after I lost my late husband, Mike, to ALS, which is Lou Gehrig's disease. About five years after he died, I found myself thinking about the, in, at that point in time how little there was in the way of education and guidance and support for the bereaved. And I grabbed mm. a pen and I started making notes on a legal pad. And when I finished, I'd written what eventually became the table of contents of the first book. And a year after that, I founded one of the first online bereavement support organizations of its kind. And then three years after that happened, my first book was published, and two more have followed, as you know. And uh, up until today, which has now been about 10 years, I continue teaching those who have been touched by life-challenging situations how to design and own their own pathways to healing. It's a wonderful uh, mission in life to have. You're doing a wonderful job with what you're doing, and I think as we go through life, finally it just sort of clicks with us, and it helps us to usher us to the right spot in our life, something that's very special to help others. Thank you. When did you realize in your grieving process, I mean, I read a little bit about the whole process that you went through in terms of it was a very challenging time for you and your family. When did you realize that things have to change for you personally? Because each and every one of us handles grief differently. That's right, and we and we need to we need because we need to realize in the uniqueness of all of us as individuals, we need to handle grief differently. We need to handle grief in the ways that we see fit, because we're all hardwired differently. So for me, my aha moment really happened very early in the process. I made a choice. Really, uh, ALS had already taken my husband's life, and I had no control or say really in any part of that journey but the part that I could control is the decision that it wasn't going to get to take my life too it wasn't going to destroy me too I wasn't going to be defined by a destiny that I didn't choose because we all have the ability to choose aspects of our destiny well that was not my choice and I wasn't going to be defined by this tragedy and it I also decided it wasn't going to further destroy a young girl, because my daughter was just at the outset of adolescence at the time that she lost her dad. And I knew also at that point, Johnny, that I had an opportunity to model a healthy recovery for my daughter, because our children are watching us. They're paying attention. Mm -hmm. And I had this Mm -hmm. opportunity to show her that we could get knocked down really hard, but we were going to get back up and we were going to uh, find this new life together and we were going to do it slowly and we were going to do it surely and we were going to do it in a healthy productive way and all of that combined to create a healing pathway of my own design very very interesting i know that as we go through our own process of grieving some takes a little bit longer in terms of Mm -hmm. going through the process and 
if we're not careful, we sort of marinate in that process for awfully long time. Did right. someone help you with the healing process? I, you know, it's interesting. I might, I'm going to steal that from you, Johnny. I like the term marinate <laughs> in the process, and I like that. Um, for us personally, um, when, when Mike was diagnosed uh, initially, mm-hmm. we turned to uh, our rabbi, uh, not and not necessarily for spiritual guidance, oddly enough, sure. but because of the need for a a roadmap. Because with that diagnosis, our lives were immediately transformed. Everything changed in that instant. We were no longer going to be in the roles that we knew and loved and cherished. Everything was going to transform, and we needed guidance as to how to best adjust to the unwanted but necessary transformation. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. life. Life was insisting that we became uh, patient and nurse rather than husband and wife. And in the middle of all that, we had a nine-year-old child. And we needed to also create a sense of normalcy for her. And how does that happen when life is anything but normal? So we had that help. And then after Mike passed away, we continued to counsel with the rabbi as we now were faced with uh, life on our own and moving into a completely different journey, but much of the healing process after my passed away was trial and error and a whole lot of learning experiences, to be very honest. So true. And you're right about the fact that the role that you play changes because now, although it is husband and wife and wife and husband's relationship, then it becomes a caretaker and a patient in a way. Exactly. If you're not careful... Some people are not able to shift, to make that mental paradigm shift. And you have to. You, you, it's, it's essential because life is insisting on it. And you have to make that shift. But at the same time, you don't, you don't want your life to become just simply about a disease because so much of your life surrounds the illness. And it, it goes for any illness that dominates a household is that, I mean, even if you want to go out for a cheeseburger, that disease is going to dictate when and how you're going to do that. You don't, you don't want to entirely lose your, either yourself or the husband-wife relationship in the illness. There are still aspects of a marriage that you can hang on to. Not, sadly, not all of them, uh, but there are still, we created little pockets of moments that we could still be husband and wife, that we could still be a couple or a family, that um, we, even though we could not enjoy, you know, activities and uh, the the life that we had built and nurtured and loved, that we could still, uh, you know, be a a husband and a wife and then the three of us together. And and we treasured and cherished those moments. Wonderful. That's true. That's when the true essence of unconditional love kicks in. That's right. That's right. Because it's easy to love somebody when everything is great, when there's everyone's healthy and there's money in the bank, and I mean that it's easy to be in love. Then, it's right. when something like this happens that the words unconditional love, because the sacrifice on the part of the family in its entirety, in so many ways. And you do that because you love this person so much. And when you look at it that as a privilege, that you are part of really this, the greatest journey of all, 
the last journey, the longest journey. Uh, and you look at it from that standpoint and how how really blessed you are to to be a part of that. Uh, it really shapes perspective, you know, at that moment in time mm-hmm. and for your mm-hmm. entire and for the rest of your life, for your entire future. What's interesting, Carol, what you just mentioned is the full circle that one goes through subconsciously because the love that you have at that time, that moment in time, at the very end of the cycle, so to speak, is the actual love that you have at the very beginning of the cycle because when you and your husband were so much in love, and I say this respectfully, I don't know what the financial situation is and so forth and at that time, but I think you know what I'm talking about where a young couple studying out the material side of the equation is not as important as you and I kind of thing, if That's that right. makes sense. No, no it, it, it absolutely makes sense. Because, uh, again, and that, and that all brings us back down to perspective. What we mm-hmm. consider important, what we, you know, what you would might necessarily argue over or what have you, all of a right. sudden takes a very uh, insignificant, almost trivial place in the right. grand scheme of right. things. When you're talking right. about terminal illness, and and what mm-hmm. life looks like now, and and the and the fact that you don't know what life looks like now, it it all it all becomes crystal clear in a way. What is right. worth fighting over and about, and what is worth walking away from? Precisely, so true. Why did you decide to write when bad things happen to good women? Actually, I didn't decide to write it. My editor decided it for me. <laughs> we were talking one day. Um, it, actually, it wasn't too long after the second book, uh, Happily Even After, had come out. And mm-hmm. uh, we were talking about all the different kinds of challenges that women face today. You know, more is demanded of women today than, than ever before. And that is a blessing, but it can also be a challenge. And we were talking about uh, all the different challenges that women uh, meet on a day-to-day basis. And it's not just spousal loss, and it's not even just loss. And everything that's going on in our lives, plus these different challenges and life adversities and struggles that women are encountering today, and the book really evolved from that conversation. She thought that this would be an incredible guide for women and as we were having this conversation my mind automatically kicked into author mode and you know what that's like <laughs> and um, and I thought and I started again I started um, you know writing down all the different challenges especially in, in today's world that women face and I also believe that it's hard to lead where you haven't been and so yeah. as I'm writing down these challenges, if I didn't have direct experience with something, I thought, I've got to talk to somebody who's been through this and who has triumphed, mm-hmm. who's come out the other side, and what did they do to take their bad thing and, and, be, and, and shape the rest of their lives? Because these are the kinds of bad things that we're talking about, is life-changing, core-shaking moments in our lives. Yeah. And so that was the evolution of the, of the concept of the book. Very interesting. I know this book is meant for women. In reading mm-hmm. the book, I can assure you that grief is grief, pain is pain. Right. So it's really irrelevant. It's not about machoism or anything like that. I think we all can learn from it. So I certainly would recommend this book for anyone who's going through the grief process, looking for ways to help heal. 
it certainly doesn't hurt at all because the stories in the end, it's unisex to me from that standpoint of view because grief does not have a label to it. And I'll be the first one to say that there are a lot of men out there that do cry. They may not cry in public. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, I, I get this, and I and I get this question so often, Johnny, where people say, "Why are you leaving the men out?" Because men grieve too. Mm-hmm. And I am the first one to mm-hmm. say, "Of course they do." And I'm I'm so pleased yeah. that in our in our online memberships that that we count hundreds of men, yeah. and and happy to yeah. do so. But the reason that I've never written you know like directly for men or from try to write from a man's perspective is from the very right. beginning i always felt that men would might even be insulted when i say well johnny mm-hmm. I, I really get what you're going through and your first thought is going to be well what do you know about what you're what i'm going through you're, <laughs> you're not me and you're not like me and and it's true men right are hardwired differently. They process things differently, including grief. And Mm -hmm. I just felt, you know, we need some really great men out there to write to men's grief and and what have you. But all of that said, certainly there Mm -hmm. is a tremendous amount of information in the book that not only applies to men who are going through uh, a bad thing, a life challenge, Mm -hmm. but if they know and Mm -hmm. love a woman, their mother, their sister, their wife, their Mm -hmm. daughter, a friend, that they can, they are certainly part of the support system that women turn to, and so this book is absolutely ideal for the, for men as well. What makes this book different from all the other grief books in the market? Well, I've I've prided myself on on always turning left when everybody else is turning right, and this is no exception. I'd like to call this a double layered book. It's got two two layers to it. First is with the first two books. I don't just talk about grief or loss or bad things. And that's, let's go back to your fantastic expression of marinating uh, in the process. I'm really going to steal that from you, my friend. Um, <laughs> because I, I read so many wonderful grief books right after I lost Mike, and they were wonderful books all, but so many just talked about grief and bereavement and sorrow and loss and dealing with loss and coping with loss. Nobody was telling me, how to move forward from that emotionally, practically, mentally. And so that's where I've I've always prided myself on being a little different. In this particular book, there is actionable advice to those who need direction immediately. And best of all, the advice comes from over 40 different women who actually lived the particular bad thing that is being discussed. And like I said, I thought that that was so important. So somebody who is a victim of domestic violence, who is going through a divorce, who has been cheated on perhaps, who has suffered uh, a broken engagement or the loss of a business or job, they can read that uh, the story of another woman who's been there and say, wow, I'm not alone. Somebody else out there gets it. So that that's the first layer of the book. The second tier of the book talks to the support systems who surround somebody who is in crisis. And it teaches how to best support their mother, their daughter, their friend, their their sister, any loved one who's going through just about any kind of adversity. So if you don't if you have ever said the words, gosh, I don't know what to say. She's going through this terrible thing. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. This book is going to tell you exactly what to say and do, and maybe even more importantly, it's going to tell you what not to say and what not to do because 
saying and doing the wrong thing, I've seen it destroy relationships, and that's horrible. So we want to help educate people, really. That's all it is, is education on knowing what, what, what things that you don't want to say to someone and things that you don't want to do as well. Right. I like the way you designed the book in terms of just exactly like that, giving situations and then what you do and what you're not supposed to do. Sometimes I always believe this in reading that book, and I catch myself going through the same process in the sense that in the course of trying to do things right, I'm not doing the right thing. And having your book in front of me sort of gave me a fresh perspective from that angle in terms of like, oh, my gosh, what I think may be appropriate is may be highly inappropriate. Or even hurtful, exactly, uh, e- even even hurtful. So so yeah. that that's why, and again, these, uh, these you know, I call them without a doubt don'ts, don't say mm-hmm. and don't do. Um, we do mm-hmm. recognize, and I certainly recognize that most people do have the best of intentions, not all the time, sadly, but right. most right. of the time people mean well. And and I appreciate that and I acknowledge that. But if your intentions are good and they are noble, let's help you maximize that potential. Let's let's help you take your intentions and really put them to the best possible use. So true. Choosing the right words to say at the right time, in the right moment, can certainly change a person's perspective in so many different ways and lighten up the load that that person right. is going through. And that's the goal. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about your book. Uh, I know you mentioned quite a bit about the different layers that you have. Kindly give us a synopsis of the book in the sense that I love the way you had it categorized in all the different areas of life. I love it because I thought, well, maybe one instant might connect to me, and yet I found myself, I'm all over the book. (laughs) I love it. It's and you know I'm 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 excited from this uh, from that standpoint that I really don't can't think of anybody over the age of you know, 12 years old that would pick mm-hmm. up this book and and just look at the table of contents and not at least know somebody who's been through at least one of the scenarios. Mm-hmm. It is an, an incredibly comprehensive guide, uh, and it it addresses so many of today's life challenges that most have or will face in today's world. And again, the the table of contents is so comprehensive from losing a home, whether it's to natural disaster or to financial challenge, to Mm -hmm. the loss of financial security, which so many people suffered through in these last few years with the, uh, the downturn in the economy and its recovery, uh, losing a job or a business because small business obviously suffered in that downturn. Things like broken engagements, online scammers, you know, things that we have to worry about in today in contemporary society that simply didn't weren't in our in our consciousness thirty years ago, even twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The the uh, betrayal that can happen uh, online. When we talk about betrayal, we usually think about being cheated on. And that is certainly addressed in the book. But there's also something called financial betrayal, and we talk about that as well. Uh, we talk about some of the most difficult subjects, I think, that, are, that anybody can face, uh, male or female, uh, domestic violence, sexual assault, stalking. Uh, there's a woman in there who is the victim of a stalker. Um, 
and, and, and how to not just move through that situation, but to actually thrive after the fact and how you get to that mm. place. Another very important aspect of the book, Johnny, that I love to make sure readers know is that there are wonderful resources in there to get immediate mm. help. Uh, whether mm-hmm. you are in immediate crisis or whether it is a uh, you've been through the crisis or know someone who's been through the crisis but perhaps could still use uh, direction, counsel, uh, support, community, there are resources with websites and telephone numbers to direct you accordingly. Uh, and that is very, very important uh, in terms of recovery, is going to the right places. That, that are in a position to help and to support. So it's really an incredible amount of information as well as inspiration uh, packed into one book. So true. What I like about the book is that you are obviously addressing it to individuals that have gone through grief as well as for people that are having someone in their life that are going through grief and so forth. But the theme, the way I read the book, certainly not all of the content, but certainly some of the content hit home for a lot of people and their situations in our lives that we go through that we feel a little embarrassed to talk about. And I feel in the sense that in reading your book, it gives me the courage to talk about it, that don't be embarrassed because these people are able to share their experiences and likewise, I'm able to. And those who can't accept that that look at me differently, then it's actually it's not my problem, it's their problem. Which I love that. I love that. Listeners, if you take nothing else away today, listen to what he just said. Listen to what he just said. It's not me, it's them. It's their problem. Because here's, here's the problem, Johnny, and this is why I'm so excited that you said that. When people criticize somebody's healing journey, whatever it is you're healing from, Whenever they say anything that isn't supportive or productive or even positive, unfortunately, the person on the receiving end of the comments or the opinions or the insight, they focus in on that negative. When someone says, well, Johnny, you know, it's been six months. Why aren't you over it? Whatever it is that you need to be over. You need to be over it. It's been six months. What that person hears is, well, I'm not over it, so there must be something wrong with me. And there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with you. And then too many people don't realize that. So that is an extremely important takeaway. Let's just, oh, we can just stop the show right now. Johnny just said everything that we needed to say right there. It's not you, it's them. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. How can anyone turn tragic experiences into something positive? That's a great question because it sounds really counterintuitive. How can you take uh, something that's, so tragic, whatever that tragedy happens to be, and make something positive come out of it. Um, And I can only speak for myself. For me, it was the will to transform the tragedy and use the experience to help other people. Uh, First of all, it was a couple of months before Mike passed away, and he said, you have to find some way to use our experience to good by helping other people. And at that point in time, I, I really had no idea what that would look like, what he was talking about. It, it didn't become clear really until five years later. And, I, you know, at that point, I did not really want to talk about him not being here anymore. 
so I was kind of listening half-heartedly. But that w- that was the the impetus for me. And also, we always feel better when we're in service to others. It's a fact. When we are compelled to look outside of ourselves and our dynamic and our paradigm and our situations and get involved by reaching out to others in need, and when we work to enrich lives, that's the only will you need. That is that For me, that is the only uh, motivation that I needed. And what better way to strike back at tragedy than to make something wonderful, fruitful, productive come out of it. You can't, you, most of the time we cannot control or undo the tragedy itself. So what are we going to do with that experience? Are we going to marinate in it? Are we going to let it define our future, our lives, the lives of our children? Are we going to let that who become who and what we are? Or are we going to take that experience and use it to better ourselves, better humankind, uh, better a community. What are we What are we going to do? That is the control we have. And for me, it was just the will to transform. By the way, I just sort of registered the word marinate, so that's a little royalty. <laughs> marinate TM. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You are never going to let me live this one down. I have a feeling. <laughs> But I loved it. I love the expression. It's so perfect. It's so perfect because I do get a lot of uh, complaints about people who feel stuck, and mm-hmm. uh, I. But I think that marinate is it's so it's it's very descriptive. It's almost visual, mm-hmm. but um, because some people really that's what they do. They do. They're marinating. Mm-hmm. They're absorbing. They are allowing uh, grief or tragedy or loss or negativity. Uh, or, or or negative people to dictate the course of their lives, and boy, am I going to rail against that! I am going to rail against the marination. Unless we're talking about steak or chicken, I am against the marinade. Wonderful. <laughs> 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 what are some of the lessons and experiences you felt were especially necessary to communicate in the book? Oh my gosh. Um, so many. Uh, the most important, I think. Um, first of all, mm-hmm. I really wanted to establish the t- that two-tiered level of education mm-hmm. because after spending, you know, the better part of 10 years listening to people saying, you'll never believe what this person said to me, you'll never believe what this person did, I thought, I now have this golden opportunity to not just educate people who are in crisis, but the people who are trying to support the people in crisis. This is my moment to speak, and I'm going to seize it. So the two-tiered approach to education was very important. And then the, the, uh, the, obviously, educating and supporting the reader in the most comprehensive way possible. And again, for me, it was to gather together uh, 42 different women who had lived all of these different experiences. You know, for example, when we talk about divorce, um, mm-hmm. divorce is a very broad and ecumenical term. It's a noun, it's a verb, but we know that there are two different sides. There is the side of divorce where you file the first paper, as we call it in law, where you're the one that decides mm-hmm. to leave, but then there's divorce from the aspect of being left behind. So we hear from two different women. And, you know, people who assume, for example, that 
somebody who initiates the divorce is thrilled and happy and dancing on tables and joining Match.com. That's not necessarily the case. In fact, <laughs> a divorce yeah. from either side of the paper is is painful, and it's wonderful to bring these different perspectives. Uh, when we t- there's a there's a chapter in there that talks about infertility and miscarriage and stillbirth and hysterectomy, and the impact as women as uh, parents, as prospective parents who never had the opportunity to do so biologically, we bring all these perspectives so that women can directly relate across the miles, across all age barriers, and people can get behind the women in the book because they're speaking the same language, if that makes sense. So that was th- th- those were extremely important lessons and experiences. Also, taking control of one's own healing journey because I I was shocked to find out years ago just how many people let others control their healing journey, no matter what it is you're healing from. Taking control of your healing journey is one of the most important messages that I'll ever teach. People are being barraged with the opinions of those around them. That's a fact, and I don't care Mm -hmm. who you are or what you're going through. You're getting opinions. You probably didn't ask for most of them, but that you're getting them anyway. Not all of them are especially sensitive or supportive or, you know, positive. One of my mm-hmm. main goals is to teach those in need how to find their inner voice and to actually use their inner voice. And the last and most important thing that I, I, that I have to teach is that just by being on this planet, all of us are entitled to live a life of happiness and abundance. And too many people believe that when they go through their particular bad thing, their lives end. And they, that's just simply not the case. I'm constantly working to change that belief system. Your life does not come to an end because you went through a bad thing, because you lost a spouse or a, 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 lo- a loved one, because you lost a job. You may, it's, it's a hiccup. It's a, definitely a speed bump. It might even be an obstacle. But your <laughs> life did not come to an end. So we need to we need to constantly work to change that belief system. So true. How will reading about someone else's challenges and problems help the reader? That sounds kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? You know, I I'm, I'm going through this terrible situation. So here's what I'll do: I'll read about somebody else going through it. Yeah. It, it helps if if it's couched in a productive way. It is, like I said earlier, it is extremely likely that a reader has or is facing similar challenges to at least one of the issues in the book. And reading that at least one other person in this world has experienced the same or similar issues coupled with actionable suggestions and some sense of direction, like I used the word roadmap earlier. When Mm -hmm. you have all that combined, that can be invaluable to the reader. And perhaps even more importantly, as the reader progresses through the book and comes across issues that either they themselves have either dealt with or are currently dealing with, they're going to realize that they're not alone. And the, most, the first and most important thing that I can ever do for anybody in crisis is provide community, even if that community is only one other person. If I can provide the knowledge and the comfort that they're not by themselves, that realization right there is so incredibly comforting because the first thing that you feel is alone. Whenever you have suffered a loss, whenever you have suffered through any kind of bad thing, you feel like you're the only one. 
And you mentioned earlier, and it's so true, with so many different kinds of life adversity, there is stigma attached. There mm-hmm. is there there can be embarrassment, there can be humiliation, um, there can be certainly guilt, um, as we discover when we talk to suicide survivors. You uh, mm-hmm. you see a tremendous amount of guilt and the stigma that's attached there. People who have who are the victims of scammers or stalkers or domestic violence or betrayal, so many times there is humiliation and embarrassment uh, that uh, accompany those those terrible things. And when you realize that there's nothing to be embarrassed about, there's nothing to be humiliated over, that it wasn't your doing, that, uh, I, in fact, when we talk about losing a job, you know, unless you walked out of the place with the cash register under your arm, a lot of the time <laughs> it is not your fault that you lost your job. Right. Uh, so right. once we start tackling those stigmas and start uh, shining spotlights and bringing these things out of the shadows, and into the into the conscious dialogue that is our society, um, that is the absolute most best comfort that I can ever bring is the realization that you're not alone and you don't have to do this alone. What I got from reading the book is the fact that every one of us have our upper and lower limits in things, mm-hmm. how we deal with situations and so forth. In short, we all have our comfort zone. In reading the various scenarios, the various situations, and the various people, how they handle the situation, allows me to formulate my own approach to how I would want to deal or how I have dealt with my own griefs that I went through in life. And surprisingly, in the end, the common theme that I got is we all need to be authentic and true to ourselves. And that comes back to the idea again, as I mentioned before, and you agree with me, it's not shame on me, shame on you. That's your problem, mm-hmm. not mine. That's right. And and, and and as soon as we help somebody to find that inner voice and we flip the switch in people's minds that that is what your thought process has to be, your healing journey gets a lot easier a lot sooner. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I easily could have titled any one of these books, Don't Let This Happen to You, because so so much of the advice that I give comes from making mistakes on my own healing journey. You know, I did not – grief and healing is not linear. We'd like it to be, but it's not. It's not point A, grief, point B, healing. It is all over the map. And part of that does – include making mistakes, making errors in judgment, listening to the wrong people, not listening to yourself. I, my, a very important aspect of my job is helping people not learn things the hard way. And yeah. so that's why this is so very important. When you find your voice early and you use it, your healing journey becomes much easier to bear. Are there common problems and challenges that women face when dealing with bad things, I know we talk about men and women being separate here, but mm-hmm. I know that you deal with a lot of women. Is there a common problem and challenge that all these women face from that perspective? Absolutely. Absolutely. The the first and most common uh, issue is guilt. And you can name just about any bad thing scenario, and I will I will give you a corresponding guilt uh, to it. Uh, using myself again as an example, uh, when my husband passed away, I felt guilty. 
I felt that I did not take good enough care of him. Uh, now, in, in female speak, that means I didn't cure him. Mind you, the med- medical mm. community cannot cure this disease, but I should have been able to do that. Uh, so you feel guilty. The, uh, next, as we just discussed, the feeling of isolation, feeling like you are the only one who has gone through this. I was absolutely convinced that I was the only widow in the world who was under the age of 90 because I had no one to talk to. I had no one that could directly relate to widowhood, certainly, because when we think of widows, mm-hmm. we don't think of somebody who is chronologically younger, who has a younger child, who has different issues than our chronologically older counterparts. So that's one of the uh, most common problems is the feeling that you are all alone. The next, and this really goes for everybody in the world, uh, feeling weak or like a failure for reaching out for help. And, again, this goes back, This is one of the uh, mistakes mm-hmm. that I made, uh, both during Mike's illness and after his death, was I perceived myself as a failure because there came a point where I did need help. And uh, at the expense of my own help, uh, my own health, uh, I, I um, finally acquiesced and said, I need help with this. And I learned very quickly it is not a sign of weakness or failure to ask for help, nor is it a sign of strength to try and cope alone. So that's another very important takeaway this morning. The, another very common error that we, that we, especially as women, make is letting other people make our decisions for us, whether they're emotional or practical, or allowing unsupportive and negative opinions to become a primary influence whether when they should be not even secondary they should be relegated to completely discounted those are the the most common things that women typically go through when when you're talking about bad things what is the best way to move past those challenges well the well when it comes to guilt realize mm-hmm. that you have nothing to feel guilty about. And again, I don't, I don't care what your bad thing is or what you're feeling guilty about unless you have done something destructive, either you know, to, to somebody else or to yourself. Really, let's get rid of the guilt. We are going to, you know, guilt be gone. We are going to get rid of that. Um, the, when it comes to taking care of isolation, that's easy. The most important message I can convey is that you aren't alone. You don't have to suffer in silence regardless of what it is that you are dealing with right now or that you have dealt with in your past. You don't have to suffer in silence. It is vital to surround yourself with the appropriate community, the appropriate support, and the necessary education that you need to deal with your bad thing. It is vital, and it is so incredibly helpful. And now with the advent of the Internet, you have more resources, especially for community, than ever before. It, how, this is such an incredible tool that we have now uh, as far as community goes. Um, like, I, and like I just said, when it comes to feeling weaker like a failure, once I figured out that I was not going to get a medal for trying to go through something by myself and I asked for the help and I accepted the help with grace and with gratitude, things got a whole lot easier and I got a whole lot healthier. So you must realize that. Uh, and realize it as early as possible on your healing journey. When it comes to letting other people make your decisions, you must ask yourself one very important question, and I don't care what the decision it is you're making. Who's living your life in your house, in your shoes? 
you know, uh, whether it comes, you know, dating again after a divorce or a breakup or a loss or how you're going to uh, manage a financial challenge, why are you letting other people make those decisions for you? The whens, the hows, the whys. Why would you do that? They're not going to be impacted. They're not getting into their car at night, driving home from work, impacted by your decision. But you are, and that is where the importance of finding your inner voice comes. And that is a very important message in this book, is you have the power. You just have to decide to use it. So true. From the perspective of someone who's trying to help others, how should Mm -hmm. people help and comfort those who are going through a bad experience? You know, the I it's okay to take a beat and a breath and run something through your head. And before you you say something, you stop and stop and ask yourself, if I were them, would I want to hear what I'm about to say? For example, if you came to me, Johnny, and you said that you had lost a loved one. Mm-hmm. And I told you, well, you know what you need to do, Johnny? You need to get a dog to take their place. Get a dog. That'll fix it. Mm-hmm. If I ran that through my head and I asked myself if I would want to hear that, I would probably be overcome with the desire to hit somebody hard if somebody told me that. <laughs> you know, I love dogs. I, I love, we have three cats. I'm all for animals. But to, but to say something like that in the guise of comfort, maybe not the smartest choice. Run it through your head first. Well, what I, well, what I'm, I am about to say helps somebody facing a bad thing. Is it going to bring comfort and reassurance? Is, is what I'm about to say going to be to anybody's advantage? You know, so run that through yeah. your head. Also, we don't want to say, call me if you need anything, because that call is never going to come. People mm-hmm. who are coping with bad things don't want to be a burden, okay? They're never going to pick right. up the 800-pound phone. So take it upon yourself to do something. Be proactive. You know, bring over an already prepared meal that can be put in the freezer. Uh, provide a gift card to a grocery store, uh, you know, and you can do that for $5 or $500 if you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, an invitation for a cup of coffee. Be proactive. Don't wait to be asked. Um, right. Other things that you, we, we don't want to say. We don't want to say things like get over it or, you know, mm-hmm. it's been X amount of time. Shouldn't you be moving on? Or, uh, you know, you knew it was coming, whatever it is or you should have known better, or I told you so. We don't want to say things like that. Um, things, Clichés, worn-out clichés. Mm-hmm. Um, everything happens for a reason. You know, even if people have that mindset, that's great, but don't you be the one to bring it up because it just sounds, it's, it's reductive, and it right. trivializes what that person is going through. So that's just, just, just a few of the hundreds mm-hmm. of suggestions sure. in the book of the do's and don'ts. What usually holds someone back from moving forward? Oh, boy. Um, Okay, this is going to sound really harsh, but stay with me on this. Um, The number one thing that holds people from moving forward is excuses. What are you using as an excuse to keep you from moving forward? What are some of the different excuses? Um, The loss itself. Using loss as an excuse will only serve to keep you in a place of loss. You know, and one of my favorite examples is a widow that I spoke to years ago, and her answer to everything was, I can't, I'm a widow. I don't care if it was changing a light bulb or going out to dinner, it was, I can't, I'm a widow. And I finally asked her, and we t- talked about this earlier, how many lives was she going to allow her late husband's 
accident to claim. It's already taken his life. How many more lives does it get to destroy? And once she heard that, she started to have a change of attitude. She left a long-time job that had made her miserable. She eventually became a registered nurse after going back to school. Once you get out of your own way, uh, magical things begin to happen. Are you using life difficulties as an excuse to keep from moving forward? Life isn't going to quit throwing curveballs at us. It keeps right on going. Jobs are lost. Cars break down. Kids get sick. You're going to run across people who disappoint and hurt you. They tell you no when you deserve to be told yes. You deal with the challenge in front of you. You get the help that you need, and you keep moving forward. Are you are you afraid to move forward? Everyone's afraid. Everybody, me, you, we're all afraid. The definition right. of a courageous person is not someone who isn't afraid. The definition of courage is being afraid and doing it anyway. It's okay to be afraid, but it's not okay to let that fear paralyze or otherwise stop you from moving forward. Uh, you know, are you are you letting negative people and opinions keep you from moving forward? Who are you allowing to stop you from moving into a place of peace? You know, keep in mind, the world is full of energy drainers. And energy drainers don't necessarily want to hurt you, but they don't want to lift you up either. So when someone says, well, Johnny, you can't do that, or why would you do that, or or says something negative to you, you look them and straighten the eye and you say, why can't I? And Mm -hmm. because what these people are doing is they're putting their choices, mostly to be miserable, onto you. Remember, you cannot share a 16 by 20 healing vision with a person who has a 3 by 5 mind. When you, when you put so that true. visual into your head space, things change. So true. You have a different perspective on the word closure. Please share that with us. <laughs> I hate that word so much that there are chapters in three books now that are devoted to that word. Um, the reason I hate that word so much, Johnny, is because as we now define it, closure mm-hmm. means that you have either the desire or the capability to put your bad thing out of sight and out of mind. You know, uh, you know, after a certain amount of time has passed, people or people around you have this. You know ex- this expectation of a well. I'm glad that's over now. You know, dust off your hands. What's next? Closure. You know, closures just become a more diplomatic way of saying get over it, which I don't mm. like that. As you know, I don't like that expression either. Now, unfortunately, yeah. when someone is told, well, now you'll have closure, which you know you hear at some of the most ridiculous times, what the person is hearing is. I don't want to hear about your pain anymore. It's closed. I don't want to talk about it anymore. And you're shutting someone else down. And that is criminal. You can't shut somebody else down. Why not create an environment for them to continue to talk and share and be whoever and whatever they are in that moment? Closure to me is something that happens on the freeway during rush hour. Okay? Closure is something that a surgeon does at the end of operation. That word has no part in anybody's healing journey. Here's the reality. Bad thing experiences are life-transforming. You are forever changed as a result of a bad thing. There's never going to be closure. So rather than think of a healing journey in, in terms of achieving some mythical thing called closure, I teach instead to think of these experiences as an event that you move forward from. It always remains a part of you, just like you know your right hand is part of you, and it's something that you will never close. 
you make it a part of you. You absorb the experiences, you absorb the heartbreak, you absorb the challenges, and you take those experiences forward with you into your new life. Do you believe in compartmentalization? I do, but I and I don't, and it it makes that that makes it sound almost brutally, you know, hot and cold and and cutthroat. Yeah, yeah. But compartmentalizing right. but for me, it's it's not compartmentalization for me was simply a way of comforting myself in a moment where I could not give in to the luxury, if you will, of grieving. For example. Mm-hmm. Um, as most of us do, after a bereavement, we have to go back to work. Work still needs to happen. And I, I would, we hit, hit our grief triggers or we have a moment, and we can't get into that moment because right now I'm at work or I'm at my daughter's cheerleading practice. or I'm at, But at 9 o'clock tonight, I have a date with myself, and I can feel absolutely as horrible as I want to and as I need to at that time. And by doing that in my head, it allowed me to relax, be in the moment that I was in, knowing that later on in that day, I was going to be able to give in to the grief, give in to the anger, give in to the sadness or the quiet, or whatever it is I needed to give in to that I couldn't earlier. So, And it sounds very easy. It isn't. I'm the first one to say that. But that was a tool that did enable me to move forward through grief in a healthy way because I wasn't putting on a brave front. That's another phrase that really annoys me. I wasn't putting on a front. I was simply being in a moment that I needed to be in and I needed to be present for, knowing that later on I could, you know, take that veneer off, if you will, and and feel whatever I felt. And slowly but surely that need diminishes uh, because I'm allowing myself to grieve, I am actually moving through a grieving process instead of ignoring it or p- slapping a brave front on it or uh, pretending that it doesn't exist. Very well said. Where can someone go to buy your book, get more information about you, and keep up with your latest happenings? Well, the book is in all brick-and-mortar stores uh, at a store near you at Chains and Independence. It's at uh, also the big-box stores as well. It's also on all major book-selling sites, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Tower. Um, and there's a lot more information at uh, two websites, widowsworstilettos.com. You don't have to be a widow, and you don't have to wear stilettos, except if you're me. Uh, and uh, also at uh, carolfleetspeaker.com. And then I'm also on Facebook at Carol Brody Fleet, and I invite absolutely everybody to uh, join us there. Wonderful. Please tell us about your story contribution to Chicken Soups for the Soul, the Power of Gratitude collection, which is set to release next month. Well, I'm going to ask you to tell us about your contribution, Johnny Tan, because (laughs) I just heard that we are in the same book. So I think you should share your contribution first. Okay. Well, mine is kind of fun. The title of my story is What I Learned from My First Thanksgiving. And I'll leave the rest to the imagination. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait. And Johnny and I are very fortunate in that we get our books early. Um, my my contribution is actually called is called embracing the the true meaning of body beautiful, and it's um, it is my second consecutive contribution. I love being a member of the Chicken Soup family, 
And it, like yours, it's, it's it's kind of fun, but there's a serious message. Um, it's tongue-in-cheek, but the message is powerful. And what I do is I detail uh, being grateful for the physical body that we were given because that's something that women eh, kind of tend to struggle with a little bit. And I'm no exception. So I detail my own struggles with uh, the body that I've been given and how it's morphed over the years. But then mm-hmm. um, I also I also share about why we need to be grateful for the body that we are housed in. And um, and I hope that everybody enjoys it as much as I enjoyed uh, sharing it. Wonderful. By the way, we're coming close to the end of the hour since our show is about people, family, and living life. Would you like mm-hmm. to share a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? Absolutely. Uh, listeners, realize that today, your today right now, whether it's absolutely fantastic or it's <clears throat> absolutely horrible, Today is not forever. Knowing that today is not forever, we must act accordingly. That means embracing the wonderful and triumphing over the terrible. And the word no does not mean never. That's a very important lesson to learn. Every single morning that you open your eyes, there are possibilities that lay in front of you every day. What are you going to do with those possibilities? Because when I hear people say, I'm too busy, I'm so busy, we're all busy. That's the word we li- we, we, it's the world we live in now. But my question is always going to be, is your busy life taking you in the direction that you want to go? Obviously, we don't have choices every day. We, don't, we can't necessarily choose if we want to go to work or pay our bills. But we do have a choice in how we're going to meet and greet every day. What choices are you making? Are your choices taking you in the ultimate direction that you wish to go in your life? And that's what you need to ask so yourself every single day. So true. Carol, thank you for the wonderful recipe for living and for spending this hour with me on From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me next Tuesday morning. My guest will be Dr. Norman Rosenthal. He is a clinical professor of psychiatry at Georgetown Medical School and a New York Times best-selling author. Dr. Rosenthal and I will be discussing his latest book, Supermind, How to Boost Performance and Live a Richer and Happier Life Through Transcendental Meditation. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to fmmktalkradio.com. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week. Carol, it has been a true pleasure. Thank you again and have a blessed day. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you. Bye-bye. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you love the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. 
The deals are getting hotter during the Deer Days of Summer. Get 0% financing for 60 months on all John Deere compact tractors. Plus, get a best-in-class six-year powertrain warranty at no additional cost. Hurry in today for the hot deals of summer. Offer ends August 2nd, 2016, subject to approved installment credit with John Deere Financial. Terms, conditions, exclusions, and warranty limitations apply. See dealer for details. Visit your local John Deere dealer today to take advantage of special savings going on now. Find out more at myjohndeeredealer.com. 